Quincy Whitell, along with local authorities in Ruxville County, led a search and destroy mission on a decaying farmhouse. Inside the house, police discovered a collection of diaries and scrapbooks detailing the accounts of more than 75 murders. The family responsible for these brutal crimes was forever to be known as the Devil's Rejects. And welcome back to an all new episode of the Film Effect Podcast, giving you full effect deep dives for the Film Effect Archive. You see, back in April, we presented you all with an episode of the show in which Rob Zombie's House of a Thousand Corpses was given the Film Effect treatment in honor of the film's 20th anniversary. And while this film isn't necessarily celebrating any anniversaries itself, it is a celebrated roller coaster ride through hell and back. You guys know I'm going with this. Hell doesn't want them. Hell doesn't need them. Folks, my name is Edward J. Snyder, and this is The Devil's Rejects. What police have uncovered reads like this. Words can't describe it. We here, we are playing on a level that most will never see. start to kill him. You best start it right here. In The Devil's Rejects, the murderous backwoods Firefly family take their road to escape the vengeful Sheriff Wydell, who is not afraid of being as ruthless as his targets. And we're back with the Firefly f- with the Firefly family for another episode of The Film Effect. The Devil's Rejects is a film that puts one's sanity to the ultimate test. There are people who love and cherish this film, while there are people who downright hate it. And there's also people who, quite frankly, don't have much of an opinion because they've never seen the film before themselves. Let me put it this way. I've literally seen this film bring someone to tears. And they weren't happy tears either. It's a story of three criminals who were downright heinous, yet after two decades are some of the most beloved villains in horror history. Does being a fan make you a horrible person? I mean... I'm not a psychiatrist, but I'm not going to honestly answer that question. So I'm not going to honestly answer that question. But I will say that without elaborating until later on in the episode, I'm a fan and I'm not a horrible person. But no, in the end, it's art. 
one's vision from one's creation. And to quote another beloved horror villain, we all go a little mad sometimes. But we're not here to discuss psychology today. No, we're not. For me, the story of the Devil's Rejects begins once upon a time. Oh my goodness, I remember the first time I saw that picture. I thought it was just wonderful. To opening night with Sean and about 15 to 20 of us rolling deep. Yeah, we were there opening night. We literally had the entire row of that theater that we saw it in, like dedicated to me and Sean and Corey and my brother and Jeff and so many other people. Like, 15 is probably a short number. It was probably more along the lines of 20, maybe even 25. Like, we literally had an entire row of seats. So figure however many seats that is, more or less, is how many people that we had in our group that night. It was a lot of us. And when I think about watching that film that night, not just about the time, because it was a good crowd. It was a fun night. We all had a good time cheering the movie and celebrating it amongst each other. Like, we were fans. And afterward, I remember just keeping the party going, hanging out. I went to about three different house parties that night and just hung out with various groups, a bunch of different people from this group and that group. And someone from this party came to this party and yada, yada. Um, It was just a good time. Uh, It was a late time, but it was a good time. (laughs) But yeah, uh, that night was a fun-filled night. Um, It was a good crowd, good positive attitude, and uh, I'm never going to forget it. It was a a night that I'm always going to remember. It's one that me and Sean used to always talk about. Hell, it's still one that I talk about myself. So, yeah, that was my first time. It was was a legendary time, as they say. Alright, so let's talk a little bit of numbers in the form of box office receipts. Get receipts. So The Devil's Rejects had its premiere on July 16th, 2005 at the San Diego Comic-Con before being released on July 22nd, 2005 from Lionsgate Films, opening up across 1,500, no, I'm sorry, 1,757 screens, 8th place opening weekend, $7 million, still a good chunk. Second weekend it dropped though, 60.4% to 12th place, $2.7 million, all in all, Total gross for the film, $20.9 million against a $7 million budget. So, crunching the numbers and doing the math, I'd say this film made about $5 to $6 million total in profit for the company. Which is pretty modest, you know. For a film of this caliber, being released in the mid-aughts, horror was kind of like here and there. It was kind of everywhere at this time, you know. Of course, his previous film, House of a Thousand Corpses was picked up by Lionsgate, and that made a lot of money for its limited release, hence this film getting greenlit two years later. Actually, a year later, and it's coming out. So, that $21 million, yeah, a little bit less than $21.7 million was the budget. So, yeah, 5 to $6 million in profit for Lionsgate. You know, people are probably thinking, well, why didn't they have a sequel sooner? We could have had Spalding. Yeah, I, I, I hear you. But the thing about that is... This film was kind of a... This film had a pretty stern ending, you know? We all saw the same film, right? We're going to talk about it later on more in detail, but the ending was to have closure for these characters, and as much as people still loved them after its release, uh, Zombie didn't want to do it. Enter Lionsgate years later, who were just kind of 
reviving these movies. They were doing they were doing the same with Kevin Smith and his films. And so they looked at Rob and they're like, hey, we have a good relationship going on. We put out 31 and um, uh, your, your Halloween films. So let's talk. And I'm sure Zombie had an idea. I remember, vaguely remember him kind of kicking the idea around on Instagram. There was a couple of particular posts where he was like posting a picture of the three. And he was like, if I were to bring these characters back, what would you want me to do with them? Stuff like that. But nothing would come to fruition for like two or three years. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. But yeah, they, I'm sure they threw him a ridiculous number to do three from hell. And while I have my qualms about that film, it's not as bad as people say it is. And one of these days we'll cover it, but I'm not about to anytime soon. We're going to put that one on uh, on the back burner. We're going to let that kind of sizzle for a little while. And um, who knows, maybe we'll come around to it in, in a year or two and talk about it. So, but we're not going to do it this year. We did uh, two of the films and the, the two important ones in, for that matter. So let's uh, keep this conversation going, shall we? Before we get into everything, let's do our pre-dive top five. Rob, it's your turn. Okay, I'm feeling kind of basic today. Top five side ones, track ones. Janie Jones, Clash, from The Clash. Mm. Let's get it on, Marvin Gaye from Let's Get It On. Nirvana, Smells Like Teen Spirit off of Nevermind. Oh no, Rob, that's not obvious enough, not at all. How about uh, Point of No Return on Point of No Return? Lewis, so you can uh, get up a- Shut up, shut up. <laughs> white Light, White Heat, Velvet Underground. Okay, that would be on my list. Though not and on mine. Massive Attack, No Protection, the song is Radio. And I'm doing top five personal favorite On The Run films. On The Run from Johnny Law. Johnny Law himself, that's right. Honorable mentions I have from Dust Till Dawn, because you can't talk about On The Run films without bringing up From Dust Till Dawn, the ultimate On The Run film. Spoilers, who haven't seen it before. Till the second half when it just becomes what it becomes. Alright, um, Good Time. An underrated Sathy Brothers film. Their first movie with Robert Pattinson. Marathon Man. An oldie but a goodie. Talked about it last week with Rob Schneider. But uh, we got Dustin Hoffman. The infamous Is It Safe scene. Oh yeah, that's Marathon Man. And finally, while it's not necessarily Johnny Law that are running from... I still had to add Mad Max Fury Road because you can't talk about on the run films without bringing this movie up in conversation. So because of that, I'm putting it on my honorable mentions. Number five, though, Queen and Slim. I watched Queen and Slim for my first time about two years ago. And it was a blind buy. I bought the film 4K and I was like, I'm going to check this out. It was, I think it was on sale for like $12.99 at Best Buy. It was award season. So I was like, what the hell? Pick this up. See how it is. I'm I'm hearing good things. I'm hearing bad things. Let me see see how it is for myself. Well, the one thing I took from the movie after watching it was how beautiful it looks. That movie is stunning looking. And I give all the credit in the world to Tat Radcliffe, who I've talked about on this podcast before. But their cinematography, the color palette, the open field, because they're down in like the south on the run. So you a lot of greens and a lot of darks. And it's really, really beautiful. But it's a typical on-the-run movie with a message. Got Daniel Kaluuya and Jodie Turner-Smith. 
to film by Molina Matsukas, and I, I I really was taken back by the film when I first saw it. Yeah, it's a little cliche, the film itself, but there are things outside of the plot that I called attention to. Like I said, the cinematography and the editing, too, is something else that I really was, was into because the film just kept me engaged. That's one thing it did do for its two-hour runtime. It definitely kept me engaged and away from my phone, so I, I tip my hat to the editing crew for that one. And it's a little quiet cast. You got uh, supporting characters, Bukin Woodbine, Flea pops up, Sturgill Simpson, a lot of talents showing up who you at least expect, let's put it that way. So that's my number five. Number four is The Fugitive. The Fugitive is a film that I watched so much growing up. came out when I was nine. I remember buying it. I didn't see it in the theaters, but I bought it on VHS when it first came out for sale, and I just ran with it. I watched that film a lot that summer of 94, and um, it was just a fun movie to watch. Now, granted, I have not actually sat down and watched it in about 10 years myself. Now, I've seen a bunch of clips, and I there was an instance a couple years ago when I came home to it being on from like the the scene where he encounters Julianne Moore and I watched it from that movie until or that moment up until the end credits but from bell to bell start to finish I haven't actually watched it in about 10 years and I need to rectify that and hopefully I will soon enough because the 4k is coming out for the 20th anniversary or the 30th anniversary excuse me and I think that comes out in November because it was just announced so once that happens I'll be able to pick it up and that's probably going to be around the time that I rewatch it again. So for now, it's number four for me. Number three is this film, Devil's Rejects, for reasons we will get into momentarily, but number two, all oh, number two. Number two is Judgment Night. Now, we've talked about Judgment Night on this podcast verbatim. We've brought it up a lot, okay? Ever since the days of me and Sean co-hosting together, that film has been brought up. So, you know it, Jeremy Piven, Cuba Gooding Jr., Emilio Estevez, Stephen Dorff, on the run from crazy fucking Dennis Leary, and Peter Green as his his number two. Now, everyone always calls attention to the soundtrack because it mixed hip-hop and rock and kind of did its own thing, and it was cool, and it was a big staple of the early 90s. People talk about that soundtrack for Breaking Ground. I'm not sure what ground entirely it broke, but it did some cool things up and about three or four years later spawn would rip that concept off and have rock artists performing with dj artists but anyway the film though judgment nights is a badass movie it's a badass movie and if you haven't done so already pick up the warner archives blu-ray that they have um, i think it's like 17 bucks right now on amazon but yeah that transfer looks solid, and the film itself, man, it's it's a movie I grew up watching, so I'm, I, of course I'm going to have it high on my list. Um, speaking of films growing up watching, number one, Enemy of the State, Enemy of the State. Now, I was not as young when that came out. That came out in 98, I was 14, I saw it in the theaters opening weekend. The thing about Enemy of the State, and we've talked about it in previous episode, shout out to the Spy Hards podcast, Spy Hards, they were here for that episode fun time it's funny because every time they bring that movie up on their twitter account or sorry x i always chime in like yeah we got a lot to say about this on that episode or you remember but anyway enemy of the state it's just a film i love so much gene hackman the sporting cast will smith john voight anytime john voight gets to just be a villain i'm in in 98 99 he had a lot of cool villain characters anaconda this 
and Coach Vilmer from Varsity Blues come to mind automatically. So anyway, Enemy of the State is just a film that I, I love so much. And if you want to hear me talk about it more and more and gloat about it and, and, and talk about it in detail, as well as Sean and the Spy Hards gang, then check that episode out from about a year and a half ago. It's a good one. So, all right, we've got all that taken care of now. Got our top five out of the way. Talked about box office numbers. Let's get into it. Let's get into the film effect breakdown. Hello again, friends. This is the Film Effect Podcast. Good morning, Film Effect. That's it. Mm-hmm. That's the end of the game right there. That's World War Three. Fucking hot recording right now. I literally never wanted a punch movie in its face more than I had last night. Definitely worth your time. It's it's definitely worth revisiting. Fifteen minutes in, I'm like, uh, Dorothy, we're not in Oakland anymore. It's in 4K, buddy. Check it out. So let's get down to the nitty gritty. Starting off our breakdown with a little cast and crew rundown. We got Sid Haig, Bill Mosley, and Sherry Moon Zombie all returning as our three core characters, Captain Spaulding, Otis Driftwood, and Baby. Look, guys, I mean, there's not really much to say. I mean, there's not much that I could say to add to the conversation about what a tremendous job these three actors do in their roles. I mean, these three characters are iconic in their own right for the horror genre. Sid Haig, rest in peace. I mean, he basically was Spalding. He was an essence of that character. He lived it throughout each and every day. I mean, I could tell in every interview I saw him in. Hell, even his portrayal in other movies is Spalding-esque. Every time I saw him at a convention, like, he embraced the role of Captain Spalding. It's the role that gave his career a, a boost that it needed 25-odd years ago or so. And then, of course, speaking of, we got Bill Mosley, and Bill's just the best. I mean, talking about people who live to play roles, Otis, I mean, one can argue Chop Top, but, I mean, it's not really a but about it. I mean, Chop Top's legendary. I would argue Otis is as legendary as Chop Top. Uh, I'm not going to say he's more legendary than Chop Top, because Chop Top is just, I mean, Chop Top's Chop Top. Lick my plate, you dirty dog, you. So, Sherry Moon Zombie is Baby. She's a lot more toned down in the character than she was in Corpses, um, which I appreciate. I actually like her portrayal in this film over Corpses. Corpses, she's just a little bit too animated, but she does a good job. In this movie, she's just a venomous bitch. You know, there's nothing about it. There's, there's just no other way around it. And she, you know, like the other two roles, she embraces this one. She's someone who is legitimately scary. I mean, there there's something about Baby in this movie and the way that Sherry Moon Zombie portrays her that's just eerie and unsettling. And she's a beautiful woman. And she's a lot more grounded in the role this time around. And she gives off this. She's. I don't want to put this in the words. She just does such a tremendous job in this role. I mean, there's not really much else to say about it. One thing I will say, though, is William Forsyth as John Quincy Wydell. Holy shit. You want to talk about heinous people. You want to talk about people who you don't want to come across with. This is a character that embellishes what vengeance is he will stop at nothing to take down these three characters who essentially ruined his own bloodline they murdered his brother in the last film so 
you know, one could argue that they weren't even the ones who killed his brother. It was Mama Firefly all the whole time. We, he didn't know that. It's not like his brother said, this is the one who killed me. He wants them all. There are no survivors, okay? When they went into the film, kicking it off at the shootout in, at, at, the, at the ranch, at, at their house, he went there with the squad ready to draw blood. Okay, he wasn't coming to put cuffs on nobody. He was there to do the devil's work, so to speak. And that's that's powerful stuff, you know. It's it the way he just takes things into his own hands. By the end of the movie, he's just a downright villain. Okay, he has become what he's been sought after. He's become that, and it's it's kind of an interesting full circle kind of thing going on um or a role reversal um what's the word for it i can't think of it right now off the top of my head but but you know what i'm talking about you know what i mean though at least so forsyth is widell great stuff ken forey as charlie altamont i mean ken forey is ken forey he is dressed to the nines in this movie i love his whole demeanor he's funny He's got Michael Berryman by his side the entire film, which I think is just hilarious. Um, and yeah, uh, there's not really much else to add. He's just, he, he's, you know, Spalding's, you know, brother, I guess, I'm assuming. Um, or former partner in another time. But yeah, I mean, Ken Foy's great. Uh, he's funny. He's um, kind of intimidating because he's a big, bulky guy. You know what I mean? And, uh, yeah, when he can get serious, he gets serious. Matthew McCroy, the great, great Matthew McCroy, the late, great Matthew McCroy. He, you know, it's his final role. He's tiny again, reprising that role from Corpses. Um, you know, that's him. That he, when I think of McCrory, I think of tiny. A lot of people will argue maybe Big Fish. I've never seen Big Fish, so I can't really talk about that film. But to me, he's tiny. And so... You know, um, there's not much to the character. He's kind of your lurch of this franchise. And in this movie, you know, he kind of bookends the film. You see him in the opening scene. and You see him in the opening scene. And then he kind of comes back for the final act. And, um, yeah, I mean, he does a great job. What else can I say, you know? Leslie Easterbrook. Mother Firefly, replacing the late Karen Black in the role. Uh, I gotta be honest with you, I'm more of a Karen Black fan. No disrespect to Easterbrook. I think what she brings to the table in this movie, I can see what she's getting at. I just think it's too much. I think her portrayal as Mother Firefly is a lot more cartoonish, over the top. Sometimes she goes too far with her monologuing and the, the tone in her voice and the way she like has that no that south like that southern call to her her voice big mustache old hey you know i think about about blowing his brains out because he seemed like such a nice man i think he said his name was also by day was he kin to you? Listen to me, you listen to me, good. 
They are gonna feel the pain and suffering every last victim. They're gonna climb their hands and knees and they're gonna beg me for mercy. But I'm gonna go find the pain. I just think it's a bit much, um, you know. I I I I like the role. I I like her portrayal. I just prefer Karen Blacks. That's all. Uh, E.G. Daly as Candy. Now Natasha Lyonne was originally slated to play Candy, but was replaced. Uh, not sure why, but I know Daly came in and read for the role and got cast. Now. You know, E.G. Daly's got this presence in this film. Candy is like the, the 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 head call girl, so to speak, at Charlie's Ranch, and it's it's so. I gotta be honest, guys. You know, eighteen years later, it's still weird seeing her in this movie because at the end of the day, E.G. Daly is Tommy Pickles to me. So when I hear this. I'm thinking about this. And it's fucking weird. But that aside, I like EG. I like Candy. She's strong. She's got a backbone, you know. She's a no bullshitter. And, you know, looks good for the role and not much else to say. Um, Dave Sheridan as Officer Ray Dobson. I'm only bringing him up because it's Doofy from the Scary Movie franchise. And Dave Sheridan kind of has, he's got some hard ties. He's, uh, he's, I know he's in this and he's also in Victor Crowley, the fourth hatchet film. But, um, I don't know. He's just, it's, it's weird seeing him go from a transition from two films as Doofy to ultimately Wydell's right hand man in this movie. Doesn't have a lot to do, honestly. He's just kind of there. But, you know, just wanted to call attention to him because it's just funny seeing Doofy show up in this serious role. And, um, yeah, that's that. Jeffrey Lewis and Priscilla Barnes as the Sullivans, Roy and Gloria. I like Jeffrey Lewis. I miss Jeffrey Lewis. He's a guy that I've been uh, a fan of my entire life since I've been in the film. He's a been a, he's been a big character actor, big ma- mainstay in, in, in the uh, genre he's got this quirky awkwardness to him that he does a good job doing and uh priscilla barnes she is just one tough cookie for everything that she has to go through in this movie um i'm talking behind the scenes stuff now but just the the barriers that she breaks down to get through to this character because it's not not everybody can portray the character that she does in this movie it's kind of a character study uh into one psyche because she gets put through a lot it's very demanding it's very physical and brutal and honestly not every actress would sign up for this role 
but she's good. It takes a lot to play this role, and I think she does a hell of a good job. So, the banjos, Lou Temple and Kate Norby as Wendy and Adam. Um, not really much to add. This is the first film I remember seeing Lou Temple in. He's kind of a stereotype, southern redneck, um, I don't know, victim in a lot of films. He's always like just there to pop up, say some shit to get heat. <laughs> Sorry, that was a wrestling term. So he just, he's just, he kind of plays like an asshole or a villainous type in every film that I've seen him in. Not to say he's, he's that in this movie. Um, he's actually quite the opposite in this movie. But every, you know, Halloween, zombies remake of Halloween. He's like a really fucking, he's a real sadistic character in that movie. And um, I'm drawing a blank, but I know I've seen Lou Temple and some other stuff where it's kind of like more of the same, you know. Just a southern dick with an accent who gets his comeuppance at some point. But in this movie, no. Uh, introduction to the character, or introduction to the actor, and I think he did a good job. Uh, Kate Norby, uh, kind of like Priscilla Barnes, you know. This this is a role that takes, that it, it demands a lot from you. And I think she gets put through the ringer as well. I, I think she also gets put through the ringer like Barnes. Not as bad as Barnes though, but still. Uh, my point is, uh, she gets a lot and she takes it. And um, it's all about the psyche, you know? She does a good job with everything she's given. Danny Trejo is Rondo and DDP Diamond Dallas Page is Billy Ray Snapper, his partner. Um, two biker bounty hunter types, tough as nails, big, bad, brutal motherfuckers. I mean, who else would you want other than DDP and Danny Trejo for these roles? I think they do a good job. Brian Pazane shows up as Jimmy. He's in it for like maybe two minutes. He's got some dialogue with his quirky gimmick where it's kind of like awkward. He's, you know, he's in the film enough to do that shtick. And then, hey, he's wearing a cheap chick shirt. So shout out to that. Because in the middle, it's Brian Pazane was uh, kind of a big deal in the comedic world. So I, I feel like Brian Pazane was, uh, kind of competing with Judah Friedlander for most random awkward appearances in films. Alright, now on to the crew side of things. Written for the screen and directed by Rob Zombie himself. Rob does a magnificent job with this film. I think, you know, there's no one else other than Rob Zombie who can pull a film like this off. I think if anybody else were to do this film, it would not be The Devil's Rejects. It would be something completely different because it doesn't have that Rob Zombie stamp. And if you know, and if, if you've seen enough Rob Zombie films, you know what that statement means. So yeah, props to him. Great job, as usual. Produced by Mike Elliott, Andy Gold, Rob Zombie, Michael Oven, Michael O'Haven, and Marco Mailitz. Uh, cinematography by Phil Parnett. Phil Parnett's a guy who got to start doing documentarian films, and then he went on to do, um, you know, kind of independent, low-budget films in the 90s until Tarantino picked him up, and then from there, he was in, he, he shot Four Rooms, he shot, um, this, of course, and then from there, did a lot of independent films, um, 
some honorable mentions. Animal Factory from 2000, the uh, Steve Buscemi film with Willem Dafoe and Edward Furlong. He also shot Hard Cash. I remember that film when I was working at Blockbuster. It's a little independent action film with Christian Slater and Val Kilmer. Um, of course, you know he shot Grindhouse for Rob Zombie. The segment with um, the trailer, that werewolf, or women of the SS trailer. He directed Rob Zombie's Halloween. He directed The Borrowers. He directed Don McKay. He directed The Roommate from 2001 um, from 2011 and yeah you know he's just uh yeah he's kind of a cinematographer known for working with first-time directors and um he also dabbles in still photography yeah phil parmet is a good cinematographer i think edited by glenn garland and music by tyler bates who also did the dawn of the dead remake rob zombies halloween as well doomsday day of the earth stood still remake halloween 2 from rob zombie super sucker punch guardians of the galaxy the entire john wick franchise the sacrament uh, deadpool 2 x and pearl stunts of the film the stunts were coordinated by kane hotter jason Voorhees, jason Voorhees himself the four-timer yeah he's on the um actually i don't think i mentioned this do a lot of my research for this episode i watched the 30 days in hell documentary from um the dvd release of devil's rejects the second disc was a full two and a half hour documentary basically documenting the entire shoot from first day till the film came out and Kane Hodder pops up a lot on that documentary because he was on set pretty much every day because he was the coordinator for all the stunts and little fun fact in the opening shootout he plays one of the cops alright let's do our swift summary of the plot on May 18th, 1978, Texas Sheriff John Quincy Wydell and a large posse of state troopers issue a search-and-destroy mission on the Firefly family, who are responsible for over 75 homicides and disappearances over the past several years. The family armed themselves and fired on the officers. Rufus is killed and Mother Firefly is taken into custody while Otis and Baby escape. They steal a car, kill the driver, and go to Khaki Palms, a rundown motel. At the motel, Otis and Baby take a musical group called Banjo and Sullivan hostage in their room, and Otis shoots the roadie when he returns. Meanwhile, Baby's father, Captain Spalding, decides to rendezvous with Baby and Otis. His truck runs out of gas on the way, and he frightens a boy and assaults the boy's mother before stealing her car. Yeah, clown. Uh-huh. Oh, hi. Hi. I'm going to have to be taking your car today. See, I have some top secret clown business that supersedes any plans that you might have for this here vehicle. <laughs> <laughs> What's that about clown business? Do <laughs> stutter, bitch? Jamie, get in the car. Lock the door. Where the hell you going, Kevin? Don't you never turn your back on a fucking clown when he's talking to you! Fucking hands off of me! What's the matter, kid? Don't you like clowns? Why? Don't we make you laugh? Aren't we fucking funny? You best come up with an answer, because I'm gonna come back here and check on you and your mama. 
you ain't got a reason why you hate clowns, I'm gonna kill your whole fucking family. All right, now get your fucking ass out the car. Come on. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Woo. Back at the motel, Otis rapes Roy's wife, Gloria, and demands Adam and Roy come with him on an errand. Otis drives his two prisoners to a place where he buried weapons. While walking to the location, the two prisoners attack Otis, but Otis bludgeons Roy and cuts Adam's face off. Back at the motel, Adam's wife, Wendy, tries to escape through the bathroom window. When Gloria attempts to rebel, Baby kills her. Wendy runs out of the motel but is caught by Captain Spaulding who knocks her unconscious. Otis returns and all three leave the motel together in the man's van. <laughs> that rhymes. The motel maid comes to clean the room and she discovers the murder scene. The maid enters the bathroom where she sees the devil's rejects written on the wall in blood. She is then startled by Wendy who is accidentally killed when she runs out to the highway to seek help while she is in shock. Wydell calls a pair of immoral bounty hunters, the Unholy Two, as they call themselves, Rondo and Billy Ray, to help him find the Fireflies. While investigating, they discover an associate of Spalding's named Charlie Altamont. Wydell begins to lose his sanity when Mother Firefly reveals that she murdered his brother. After having a dream in which his brother commands him to avenge his death, Wydell stabs Mother Firefly to death. The surviving Fireflies gather at a brothel owned by Charlie, where he offers them shelter from the police. After he leaves the brothel, Wydell threatens Charlie to give up the Fireflies. With the help of the Unholy Two, the sheriff takes the family back to the Firefly house where Wydell tortures them. Using similar methods they used on their own victims, he nails Otis's hands to his chair and staples crime scene photos to Otis's and baby's stomachs. He then beats and shocks Captain Spaulding and Otis with a cattle prod and taunts Baby about the death of her mother. Wydell sets the house on fire and leaves Otis and Spaulding to burn to death, but he lets Baby loose outside so he can hunt and taunt her for sport. Charlie returns to save the Firefly family but is killed by Wydell in the process. Baby gets shot in the calf of her left leg, brutally horsewhipped, and then strangled by Wydell. Tiny suddenly appears and intervenes, breaking Wydell's neck and saving the Firefly family. Otis, Baby, and Spalding escape in Charlie's 72 Cadillac Eldorado and leave behind Tiny, who walks back into the burning house. The trio drives, badly injured. As Otis drives down the road with Baby and Spalding asleep in the back seat, he notices a police barricade ahead of them. Realizing that they will not make it out alive, he wakes Baby and Spalding up and hands them each a gun. They speed towards the barricade as Skinner's Freebird plays, guns ablazing as the police return fire, fading to black. Actually, it's a freeze frame. Alright, so some production history tidbits. When Rob Zombie wrote House of a Thousand Corpses, he had a vague idea for a story about the brother of the sheriff that the Firefly family killed coming back for revenge. After Lionsgate Entertainment made back all their money on the first day of Corpse's theatrical release, they wanted Zombie to make yet another film, and he started to seriously think about a new story. With Rejects, Zombie has said that he wanted to make it more horrific and the characters less cartoonish than in Corpse's, agreed, and he wanted to make something that was almost like a violent western, sort of like a road movie. He also cited films like Bonnie and Clyde, The Wild Bunch, Badlands, and The Texas Chainsaw Massacre as influences on Rejects. When he approached William Forsyth about doing the film, he told the actor that the inspiration for how to portray the character came from actors like Lee Marvin and Robert Shaw. Sherry Zombie does not see the film as a sequel, 
She says, It's more like some of the characters from House of a Thousand Corpses came on over, and now they're the devil's rejects. Principal photography was emotionally draining for some of the actors. Moon Zombie remembers a scene she had to do with Forsyth that required her to actually cry. The scene took two to three hours to film and affected her so much that she did not come into work for two days afterward. Arguably, though, the most traumatic scene to film was the particular scene involving Bill Mosley's Otis and Priscilla Barnes's Gloria. The film went through the MPAA eight times, earning an NC-17 rating every time until the last one. According to Zombie, the censors had a problem with the overall tone of the film. Specifically, censors did not like the motel scene between Mosley and Barnes, forcing Zombie to cut two minutes of it for the theatrical release. However, this footage was restored in the unrated DVD release. Zombie, who was also a musician, decided to go with more Southern rock to create the mood of the film. The film's soundtrack itself was notable as being one of the first to be released on a dual disc, with the DVD side featuring a making of featurette for the film and a photograph gallery. In 2019, Zombie announced that Waxwork Records would release the soundtrack on vinyl, along with two other zombie films in the trilogy, House of a Thousand Corpses and Three from Hell. The record included an essay written by a zombie and a 12 by 12 inch booklet that contained behind the scenes photographs. So yeah, they shot it for 30 days back in 2004. Not a whole lot to it. It was a pretty easy shoot time-wise. They just shot it for about a month. In fact, it was 30 days. Hence the title of the documentary, 30 Days in Hell. And uh, yeah. Alright. Let's have a little in-depth discussion on The Devil's Rejects, shall we? First thing I want to talk about, the obvious comparisons to the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the the OG 74 version. You know, you got the grainy 16mm footage, you got the opening crawl and narration, everything basically from the opening scroll to the invasion that occurs at the house sets up for like, you have that feel... You have the house with all the victims inside and the, 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 the villains, of course, with their victims. The fact that the movie looks and feels like a real dirty, gritty, you know, stylized version of itself, basically. You know, it just looks and feels like TCM all the way. I just wanted to call that comparison because I know a lot of other people do. Like, right away, you can sense that this is a much different beast altogether, and that with corpses, it was all about color and unique camera tricks, paying homage to veterans like De Palma and Toby Hooper. Where with this movie, it's already a different... It's already different in that the colors are drawn out, given everything a very dirty and yellow look. One look at this already should tell you that Rob only had half the budget this time around. That that remember that Universal Pictures, a key production company, mind you, financed houses while this was produced and financed by Lionsgate, who were still a relatively small company at the time and not quite the top company that they, you know, turned themselves into today. But that look that you have of course, we can thank Phil Parmet again for that. Zombie hired him after seeing his documentary Harlan County from 1976 because he wanted to, sh- you know, he wanted to adapt the handheld camera do- documentary look. Because of this, the film has it was like I said before, shot on 16 millimeter to give it a more documentarian look and feel. And here in this opening scene, we see Tiny dragging this naked corpse through the dark woods. 
and after it's funny because actor Matthew McGrory isn't even in this scene he actually injured his ankle prior to shooting and the crew they had to find a guy who was 7'4 like a stunt double to essentially replace him so they, they could film this and then the double you know a little trick it it turns to a close-up shot and then that's when they got mcgrory back that was all shot after the fact um the opening shootout itself though like i said before we had kane hotter here front and center he's approving everything going on mr dobson it's time for us to do what the good lord would refer to as a cleansing of the wicked and what my brother george God rest his soul, used to call a 100% Alabama ass kicking. So you think we're gonna die here today? Dying's not an option. Now you stick that back in that gray matter of yours and you make that stick. Cause any other thought's gonna get you cold, slab, toe-tagged, and mailed home to your mom in a plastic bag. Are we Crystal? Crystal, sir. Gentlemen, let's do what God made us to do. Now, both the Frontier Funtown brothel that we see later on in the film, where uh, Charlie—that's uh, that's his um, his his land, as they call it—and this house, the Firefly House, they were built on the same saddle ranch, at Sable Ranch in Santa Clarita, California. Again, different company, which means the house from Best Little Whorehouse in Texas is no longer in play. So they had to build a new house here. Prior to filming, it was located in the middle of a forest and had been standing there for a long time. It was used in many films throughout the 90s. It was also used in the pilot episode of the hit show Supernatural, but then it was destroyed by a wildfire on July 23rd, 2016. Uh, Prior to the shootout, everyone's awake and they're panicking and they're getting ready for a gunfight. And we see this brief mother-daughter moment between baby and mama firefly this this subtle like i love you moment between the two mama what's the matter i keep thinking about all times like when you was a fucking baby you know you look like an angel i know mama you told me that a million times yeah gentlemen i love that i just love it because it, it it reminds me right away of the relationship between these two from corpses and here even though it's a different actress playing mama firefly that feel is still there you can still sense the love between baby and her mother so we get that one last time before a bunch of authentic freeze frames happen and you know it, it gives the film a more grindhouse cinema feel zombie uses a lot of unique old school scene transitions throughout the film that i also enjoy for the most part the shootout at the beginning of the film is very reminiscent of Australian Bush Ranger Ned Kelly and his gang's last stand at Glen Rowan. The armor that we see um, Rufus in 
and the scene's presentation are very similar to the other film representations of Ned Kelly's tragic final defense. That all happened pretty much just like that, and they and and Zombie was quick to, you know, take everything from Ned Kelly's armor to just everything that went down and use that for this opening shootout. In fact, he used over 160 live squibs for this shootout. And then we get the opening credits after um, this funny shit. I love it here. Um, Baby Otis have already escaped. And Mama Firefly is tending to Rufus, who has just went down like a sack of potatoes. Like he took so many bullets, even through his armor. His little makeshift armor wasn't even helping all the bullets he was taking. And so he goes down and he's dead. And he's also played by Tyler Maine this time around. He's not played by, I forgot the other actor's name from the first film. But they recasted Tiny. Or I'm sorry, they recasted Rufus. So we get Tyler Maine in this role now. Who went on to be Michael Myers for both Rob Zombie's Halloween films. And that's when Wydell and his his men, you know, they, they hold her up. They're like, you're under arrest. You know, we weren't coming looking to slap cuffs on anybody, but since you're here, why not? And she grabs a gun. She's like, you know, you're not going to take me alive. But then click, click, click. All we hear is a click and turns out the gun's not loaded. So looks like Wydell's taking her in anyway. And after that, we get. It's, it, it, it's it's a funny transition into the credits and I like how it's set to the Allman Brothers Midnight Rider and then we see Mary Warren Warrenov her character's name is Abby I'm not sure why her character was given a name because we don't even hear any dialogue it's literally set over the, the song during the credits she gets killed by Otis so they can take her car baby essentially plays victim and she goes to tend to her and that's when otis comes from behind with a big ass hunting knife and stabs her to death now the death scene was tough to capture it was tough to capture because a whole combination of things from the blood rig not working initially and you can see this all in the documentary too it's pretty funny mosley missing his mark on the blood rig too much intensity from mosley on warnov and the low camera angle missing the blood work completely once everything finally worked out for the shot. Because they wanted to shoot from a low angle from Baby's point of view, or her perspective at least. But then you don't see no blood shoot. It, you're, you're catching Baby upward. You're seeing Mosley in that intensity. You see the knife go in the Warnov's back, but you see no blood. And by this point, there's blood everywhere. Sherry Moon's fucking entire stomach is covered in it, but nothing on the camera. So they had to go back and reshoot that. Captain Spaulding then and his reintroduction, uh, it's its funny. We first see him in this movie having sex with Ginger Lynn Allen, an old 70s porn star. And turns into a nightmare real quick. Oh, yeah, honey. Oh, oh. Yeah. Oh, 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 yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh, 
a good ride tonight. Oh, <laughs> next time you're gonna have to pay me. Did you just call me a fucking whore? Calls him like I see you. Really? You think I'm a fucking whore? I don't think it. I know it. For this fucker. Hey, hey, hey. Come on now, baby. Hold on. I'm just messing with you. You know, as clowns, we like to, we like to just fool around a bunch, you know? Come on. It's funny too because she's still like on top of him, literally riding him, and she just whips out this gun and she's like, laugh. And then bang! And he wakes up, we see who he's really being intimate with. What's the matter, bad dream? Yeah, 50 50. Around some more? Oh, Jesus Christ, woman, I gotta take a piss. No. Hey, didn't you get enough ass banging last night? God damn it, my dick is still sore. Oh, come on, I'm horny. Oh. Most guys like that quality to girl. Yeah, except <laughs> you're acting like some kind of spastic mongoloid in heat. <laughs> <laughs> and let's just say her name is Ruth, and she's played by actress Juanita Guzman. Now, it's funny. Ruth's a funny character. I actually do dig this scene because, you know, he's trying to get out. He he wakes up and gets the phone call from Baby. And they're all coming after you too, Spalding, so get the hell out of there. And the whole time, we see this woman, Ruth. She's, like, super horny. And she's, like, trying to, like, get, you know, the morning delight. And he's just like, didn't you get enough pumping from last night? You know, talking about butt-fucking her and shit. And, like, she's just... I like this little moment where she, like, smiles and, like, she's like, uh-huh, uh-huh. And he, like, mocks her, like, uh-huh, It's just... It's funny that the, the two of these, the, the dynamic between... Or maybe it's the chemistry between Spalding and this woman. Even though it's very brief, like it's literally a 90-second scene. But it's a very memorable and funny 90 seconds. Now, speaking of this house of Spalding's, it's disgusting. It is run down. It is filthy. It is full of mold and trash and filth. It's a real place. That's how they found it. They didn't touch it. They didn't do anything to it. They kept it as they found it. And not only that, but they must have, like, hit the jackpot. Because within this, like, couple-mile vicinity on this lonely highway stretch in the desert, we have Spalding's Place. Right down the road, they found a gas station. Or not a gas station, a rundown motel, which they turned into the Kiki Palms. And um, we have also the industrial area where Otis takes Banjo and Sullivan and has that moment and those three places make up for like 60 percent of your film and it's all within you know this little radius it's it's pretty cool so rosario dawson was in this film time to talk about a scene a particular scene that i was hyped for prior to this release because before this came out I was led to believe, or rather under the impression, that Dr. Satan was in this movie. And while I wasn't completely crazy, yes, Dr. Satan is in this movie, technically. They found him alive, and it's a scene, if you want to find it, it's online. It's also on the DVD and Blu-ray. 
tell me something, Seymour. He said anything since you wheeled him in? No, not really. Some garbled bits of unintelligible bullshit at first, but last few hours he's been pretty much the way you see him right now, in a coma-like state. So what's your name? Marsha. Marsha. Like the Brady Bunch? <laughs> yeah, like the Brady Bunch. She was a hottie. So uh, Speedwagon's playing the fairgrounds this weekend. Dobson. Be right back. You ain't changed at all, you know. I don't like you. And Rosario Dawson pretty much plays a nurse. And Dr. Satan's in this hospital room. And I don't know, it just felt out of place because, I don't know, Zombie felt the costume for Satan looked too campy. And since this was a more serious film than Corpses was. And then Dawson, her character's killed off within like 30 seconds of first seeing her. So that was a waste. And Rob also said that he cut these scenes because seeing Dr. Satan in the film would be like seeing Chewbacca and Bonnie and Clyde. That was a quote. And like I said, you can find them online and on the DVD and Blu-ray, but it's just really bizarre seeing the scene in here. So, I don't know. I, I Sometimes I often forget about the scene even happening, but prior to it coming out, I do remember just thinking about the possibilities like how is dr satan gonna show up in this like on the run kind of movie because prior to its release i knew what kind of film was gonna be i knew it was gonna be a different beast altogether i knew it was gonna be essentially an, an on the run film but dr satan it's like how is he gonna come into play well we found out wasn't even it like i said they had a limited budget about half the budget of corpses but they still utilized things like a crane shot. This movie has a fucking crane shot. More than one, actually, at that. So, Rob Zombie, he, he knows how to play with money, okay? You, you give him a certain amount, and he'll know how to divvy it precisely. He's got a small amount for his cast because love him or hate him, the people that he hires, they work for cheap. They're just working to be thankful to be in a big release at this point of their career to begin with. But a lot of them work for peanuts, so... You know, he's saving money there. Also, the people that aren't known, he's he's casting younger, unknown faces. He's got a small production crew, and a lot of them people are like leftovers from other films. Like he keeps a pretty tight ship with uh, his production crew, and they carry over from film to film. So most of these people were on corpses. And a lot of these people are going to be, you know, in a couple years from now, they'll be in Halloween and then Halloween 2 and then Lords of Salem and so on and so forth. You get my drift. Um, so, yeah, Zombie is smart. 
he, he's a very smart person when it comes to the business. He's a businessman, essentially, and knows how to, you know, utilize money to, to his best, you know, to its earnest. So now we can talk about this entire sequence at the Kiki Palms Motel. We got Brian Posehn wanting to be a clown. It's one little brief moment of minor character development, I guess. I mean... It's, it's wasteful because the next time we see him, he comes in, gets pulled into a room and shot in the head. I'm sorry, got the wrong room. I'm looking for room number two. No, you got the right room. Come on in. Is Roy in there? Roy's in here, all right. Come on in. You're on your knees! Roy, help! That's it. Like I said, shout out to his cheap trick t-shirt. Now, it's funny, too, that there's a little story behind that cheap trick shirt that he's wearing in the film. Rob Zombie was kind of, like, doing costume for everybody while he was scouting locations. And he had this sketch of what Brian Posehn's character would look like. And he said that he wanted to have a vintage t-shirt from a band. And they were thinking, like, Aerosmith or Kiss or something. And he was like, I'll just call Cheap Trick. I know the guys in that band. I'll just call them and it'll be a personal favor. So that's a legit vintage t-shirt that he's wearing in this film. And it was from the band as a favor. So I thought that was pretty funny. Uh, I found that out on the documentary. And then, you know, we can talk about the, the late Jeffrey Lewis and how he once met Johnny Cash. Did you know he shook his hand? So yeah, the intensity of the shoot, I mean, that's pretty much the one thing that we can talk about intensity. Think about it. To be an actor, you're putting yourself in someone else's shoes, a fictional character, and you're bringing them to life. How do you bring this moment to life when you're Priscilla Barnes or Bill Mosley? Two people who could be who could be any more different from the characters that are portraying, especially Bill. Bill is the exact opposite of Otis Driftwood in real life. Uh, Priscilla Barnes probably a little bit, you know, closer to her character of Gloria than Bill is to Otis, but still, my, my point is how do you get in the mindset to shoot such a filth act? And it's one of the scenes, it's one of the film's key scenes, too. As horrible as that may sound, it is. A lot of people, you know, when you talk about this movie, it's kind of hard to have a conversation about the film and not talk about this. And you know what I'm talking about. Not to really get into the details about everything, but, you know, Bill Mosley's sexually assaulting Priscilla Barnes' Gloria character. And he's forcing everyone, including her husband, uh, to, to watch as this happens. And it's a very vile scene. And it says something these two people that are just giving it their all for something that's just so downright awful and disgusting and they're just so good at it and it's filmmaking man it's such an interesting beast it really is so my point is and this this harkens back to the cast and crew conversation that i already had and it it takes a lot to do this and that's why i think priscilla barnes and bill mosley Um, They should get all the recognition in the world for their portrayals because this scene, I don't think I could do it. I'm not going to lie. I don't think I could do it. I don't think I could stand there. I don't think any dollar sign, any amount could be thrown my way to make me do this and to make it come off as believable. I mean, trying it's one thing, but trying it and actually succeeding, it's, I don't think I could. I don't think I would ever 
or could ever get to that point that Bill does. And he's just so good at it, you know? And I think it's because Bill has a lot more history playing these fucked up characters. And he's been doing it for the better part of 30 years now. Actually, no, 40 years. So, yeah. And and, and as far as the casting, uh, talk about Wendy. Zombie said that he had a tough time casting her because he couldn't find someone who was willing to go fully nude for an extended period of time during the shower and hotel scenes, for one. And then he said there were several people who would strip naked, but they couldn't act. He also wanted someone who looked natural and vulnerable and real because he didn't want the scene to be sexy. Then Kate Norby auditioned and Zombie felt that she was perfect. And the rest is history. And as I mentioned earlier, eight different submissions to the MPA due to this sequence alone. (laughs) And the dialogue. We can talk about that too. And this gets into the scene where Bill takes the two guys out for a little errand of his. The dialogue. Please, mister, stop. Please. Stop. Stop? Bitch, I have just started. You know, I was going to take it easy on you, boy. But you brought this down on yourself. You had to come all fucking big sick, walking tall like a big fucking hero. Got yourself to blame, hero. Look at you now, hero. You're gonna fucking bleed to death. Fuck you. That's what they all say. Fuck you. Well, I ain't gonna save you. Don't scare me, none, and it don't suddenly make you a fucking hero. Want to see what happens to heroes, boys? You want to see badass, motherfucker? I'll show you badass. Hoss, I want you to pray to your God. I want you to pray that he comes and saves you. I want lightning to come down and crash upon my fucking head. Jesus. Louder! Ah, bless the bunnies. Bless the little birds. Bless the I don't world. feel anything. Ah, bless the springtime morning. Oh, 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 oh. I feel it. Oh, great God Almighty, I repent, I repent! Oh, I feel the love of the God, God, God Almighty. Oh, the Holy Spirit is in my body. I am the devil, and I am here to do the devil's work. power with Otis, the way he's trying to get into each other's heads while he's escorting the guys to the spot where his guns are buried. No bullets. That's another fucking example of, of mind power. I think Sherry Moon actually says it. You know, mind power. Wendy's death. Nah, fuck that. We'll talk about, you know, uh, the, the, the other two. Um, I don't want to call them Banjo and Sullivan. That's not their names. Um, Roy and Roy and Adam. So Roy and Adam, they they try to get away, and Otis delivers the dialogue. 
the way he's standing strong and powerful as he says, I am the devil and I am here to do the devil's work. It's just gripping. It's memorable. It's something that as a fan of this movie, I'm always going to take that moment in and remember it because it's one of the standout moments of the film, you know. But um, Wendy's death. I don't know. call this stupid but it's mindless and idiotic their death scene i just i i criticize this scene i just feel like why does she have to die the fact that she's got to live on with the, the the pain and memories of her husband and friends dying and being assaulted like something about that is to me is worse than dying really you know so i, I don't know i just the way she goes out she is hooked on a ledge and she frees herself when the maid comes in and then instead of just like ripping off the mask and everything else she just runs out with the face on her head gets run down by a goddamn 18 wheeler it's fucking crazy but yeah and that also that kind of drips into the conversation of the digital effects story behind it goes as is zombie had all intents and purposes of doing the film with physical with um practical effects like zombie originally intended on creating all the uh, effects using only techniques available in the 70s but time constraints prevented this it was all about time it was a rush shoot in 2004 i know that lionsgate really wanted to fast track this film and get it out in theaters like as soon as possible and so they didn't really have enough time. You would think a film as low-key and gritty as this one, you would think that it would be a perfect shoe-in for a movie to have practical effects. But no, we've got this CG madness going throughout. You know, the CG, even at the end, with the CG fire, when Wydell sets fire to the house, like, it just, it's doesn't look great and it has not aged well i mean i've seen some really good digital effects but first of all you're only using them because you're running out of time so of course you're not going to take the time to worry about how it looks because it does not look the best in fact i argue that that's the thing that stands out the worst in this film or all of the digital effects with the digital blood and all like i didn't like it in 2005 and I fucking loathe it in 2023. So we talked about Easterbrook is in um in Karen Black, like the little comparison. Talked about that in the casting crew, so we don't have to bring that up again. Thank God. So how do you take these horrible monsters and make them beloved antiheroes essentially at the end? You know, starting with the 2D fucking fruity scene. Bullshit. You know, I trust that fucker Charlie about as much as I trust you. Where the hell did you get all fucking shit about Charlie? Hey, I know what I know, and I know I don't like that nutsack. Well, unless you got a better suggestion, I suggest you keep your fucking eye holes shut. That is the only remotely safe place I know about. Uh, hey man, if anyone's interested, I think I'm gonna be wanting some ice cream in about 10 miles. Hey man, I think I'm gonna be wanting some ice cream in about 10 miles. Don't you fucking imitate me, it's fucking rude. I know what I know, and I know I don't like that. No, no. Fuck you. Fuck you. Two fucking seconds for the kid. Is that gonna kill you? Yes, it is gonna kill me. 
I have calculated the time, and two seconds is the exact amount of time that's a hazard to my fucking health. <laughs> Come on, don't be such a fucking drag. I'm starving. Can't eat this. What is your fucking problem? I'm in and out in two seconds. You know, I think I'm gonna get me some tutti fucking fruity. Tutti fucking fruity, that sounds good. Tutti fucking fruity. Shut up. Tutti fucking fruity. The film starts to center in on the relationship aspect of these three serial killers. I know the film is given the impossible task trying to get us on the sorrow side of things with these maniacs, especially after the motel stuff. What I go back and forth on though is separating reality from make-believe. That's the beautiful thing about movies. There's no wrong answers. No rules saying who you can or can't sympathize with. No judgment for taking the side of three characters who just raped, tortured, and murdered five innocent people in cold blood. Okay, maybe four. But even they knew what they were doing with Wendy. In the end, it's art. It's art, people. In the end, it's art. Like who you want to like. There are no wrong answers with cinema. There aren't. So Charlie and the Frontier Fun Town Brothel. I mean, the relationship between Ken, Forey's Charlie, and Captain Spalding. Brothers or old partners from way, way back together. The movie doesn't specify. Kind of led on to, you know, kind of choose your own adventure. Were they brothers or were they old partners? I, I kind of tend to lean towards the latter. Um, I used to think they were brothers, but I'm like, ah, the more I watch this film, the more I think they, they were old-time partners who just refer to each other's brothers, perhaps. Oh, and on the topic of E.G. Daly again, uh, as Candy, there's another worker in this sequence named Casey, played by Deborah Van Valkenburg. They were both in Streets of Fire. <laughs> previous episode but that's just, it's funny I, I i'm pretty sure zombie knew that going into this movie like I, i'm sure in the back of his head he was like i gotta get vandenberg and and daily together from streets of fire you know probably probably not i don't know <laughs> then there's there's always been this standout scene with the fucking chickens the chicken scene with uh, Michael Redbone Alcott playing this fucking weirdo selling Forey and Merryman chickens. Oh, yeah. Lord of mercy. For the morning. Levi. Yeah, boss. You know why I come here to get these chickens? No, boss. Because my brother makes the best fried chicken in the world. Is that right? Hey, good morning, good morning, good morning, good morning, sir. How are you? How y'all doing? Good morning. Good, good, good. What you got for me? Well, we got these uh real cute bar rock chickens here. Yeah, I see you. Got them nice, long-legged, roll down the red chickens. Rhode Island Red! Yeah, them Oh, I nice. like them. I want a Rhode Island Red for me, all right? Yeah, Two Rhode Island Red, too? Yeah, yeah. Now, y'all ain't planning on fucking these chickens, are you? What the fuck are you getting at? Do you fuck chickens? Well, I have thought about fucking some chickens before. Huh? 
if you want to have a good time and you need some pussy, you can cut that chicken's head off, stick your dick in that ass of that chicken, and that damn chicken will go crazy on your ass and go, Are you saying that I would cut off a chicken's head, put my dick in it, fuck it, and go, ah? You accusing me of fucking a chicken, motherfucker? No, I ain't, I ain't calling you chicken fucker, but that boy over there looks sex, sexually frustrated and... I don't approve a chicken fuck. You hear me call me false? I ain't no fucking chicken. Hey, come here, fucking chicken. Stop yakking and grab the fucking chicken, Cleavon. I'll get the chicken. Yeah, fuck. Appreciate it. Thank y'all. He's the chicken. Fuck him. That's all right. Put it back there. Next time we go someplace else. We ain't never buying chicken from him again, boss. Yeah, I know. And I just love Forey's retort. He's like, you mean to tell me I'm going to cut off chicken's head off, stick my dick inside, and go, eh. Just his whole delivery, the whole fucking fact that he takes a super offense to it, Berryman's reaction, hilarious. There's so many fucking elements to this scene that makes me laugh every time. It's, it's, it's fucking great. And as soon as the deal is made between Whitell and Charlie, that happens after this scene, then the sun goes down, there's this immediate sense of discomfort, knowing the worst is coming. And again, we should be happy that these three are on the verge of meeting their maker. This is what horror does. It makes monsters out of all of us. I know, I know. Speaking of, I love the Western aesthetic when Wando and Snapper attack the brothel. The entire setting, plus the old narrative of driving the bandits out of town, I think it works so well together. And it's just a, it's kind of a scary moment. There's like this scene where they just kind of lurk in. You see um, Valkenberg's character Casey get her throat slit while she's going to the refrigerator. And then you see E.G. Daly get shot in the head while she's making love to the baby. And all while the 70s music is playing, I forgot what's, what's, what's playing during this particular scene. But um, they just come in and they're just so demanding. You know, they throw us through the window. Like they take control. They take over the scene here when they kidnap the three and send them back to Wydell. Speaking of, we're returning to the Firefly house with turntables. So Wydell's now gone full madman by the time this third act kicks off. I got over here some photographs of every missing person within a hundred miles of this shit hall. Valerie Green. Take a look at that, man. She was beautiful, huh? You know, anybody fuck her. This is what she looked like when we pulled her out of your little fucking torture shack. She ain't so fuckable anymore, huh? Oh, yeah, she is. <laughs> I cut her tongue out and tied her to my bed for a month. Busted that bitch wide open. Well, then you get to have this as a souvenir. What about Mary Knowles? Anybody? That fucking bitch is mine. <laughs> no, no, she was mine. I did her. Come on. Bring it on to me. She's all mine. Baby, shut the fuck up. Baby, you want her? It's all chaos. All chaos, baby. 
And as sadistic as Wydell's become, we still see Otis Spalding and Baby claiming their victims and mocking them in front of the villainous Wydell. What does that say about everything now? Still siding with the killers? I don't know. Is Charlie's last minute change of heart too little too late, or is it a redeeming factor? I've always kicked around that question because I'm still not sure how I feel about it. Because it's kind of cliche, but how else was Baby going to get out of that situation? Well, if I were writing the screenplay, I would actually have it to where she kind of like channels her inner run rabbit run senses. And the way she went just fucking apeshit on that girl in the first film kind of turns the tables and does the same thing to Wydell here. But that doesn't happen. And I love when Wydell eventually lets Baby out. And after he's done torturing the three of them, lets her out. And then it just becomes an old school slasher film through a barnyard setting. A little role reversal from the first film with Baby chasing Mary through the rabbit hole. So when I first saw this film, I completely forgot about Tiny. I remember legitimately thinking either Dr. Satan was going to be the one to save her or Baby was going to die by the hands of Wydell. I really thought that Wydell was going to kill her or Satan was going to pop up in this scene when I first saw this film opening night. Neither of those two happened. In fact, Tiny appears and I was like, shit, fucking forgot all about Tiny. Forgot all about him. But yeah, the film didn't. Tiny comes, saves the day, breaks Wydell's neck. Oh yeah, I got something. Hey, get up! Come on, come on, I said get up! No, I don't know about you, but I sure wish I had a bullwhip for this occasion, but I found this. I reckon it'll do. You like the feeling of being helpless? Being at the mercy of some of the statistics who aims you scared? That's a fucking party, is it? That makes you feel proud? Fuck you! Fuck you! Otis and, and uh, Spalding and then just he knows that there's no future for himself so the three take off in Charlie's Cadillac and Tiny just walks into the house one last time it's um it's fucking heavy it, I'm not gonna lie it's, it's heavy watching him walk in there knowing that he's doing it because there's nothing left for him because He's deformed himself. He didn't choose to be that way. We heard the backstory from corpses. You know, the the his father set fire to him for no reason. He was just insane. So, final piece of conversation here is the ending. Going out the Freebird. It's one of the most iconic endings in horror. 
or at least the genre. The dreamlike sequences that Otis saw himself, Spalding and Baby during the ending were actually clips of candid footage of the three actors that was shot on the final day of filming. After wrapping up on the last day, zombie film Sherry Moon, Bill Mosley, and Sid Haig as they had some post-wrap-up fun and said their goodbyes into the camera. So he took that and turned it into this beautiful happiness between the three that's kind of like sprinkled in between what's about to actually happen and that's you know the, the shootout so gunshots freeze frames and then terry reed's seed of memory plays over an end credit sequence set to the uh, desert road plays over the end credits set to the desert road that the dying trio had been driving on and it's it's beautiful i love it sometimes i just sit there and watch the credits play out i mean you should give all the crewmen their respect by watching their credits for every film. But for those of you who don't, just saying. And final question. A little rhetorical question here. Does 3 from Hell ruin the finale of this movie? Answer that to yourself as I move on now. To Trivial Pursuit. It's funny. Little things used to mean so much to Shelley. I used to think they were kind of trivial. Believe me, nothing is trivial. All right, Otis's line, I am the devil and I am here to do the devil's work, is a slightly altered version of a quote spoken by Manson family member Charles Tex Watson during the infamous Tate murders. Sherry Moon Zombie's brother has a cameo as a police officer in the opening shootout scene. He was originally only on set as a visitor. But director Rob Zombie put him in the scene because he knew how to hire, he knew how to handle firearms as well. Up until 2016's 31, The Devil's Rejects was the hardest film of zombies to cut down in order to receive an R rating. It was cut, like I said before, seven times. Seven times. Chris Jericho auditioned for the role of Rondo, but he was told he was too pretty for the role. Danny Trejo was cast instead. And it's funny because Jericho and DDP went on to be a tag team at some point, I'm sure, in WCW. Sherry Moon Zombie was emotionally drained during the shoot with um, the scene I mentioned earlier with, with uh, Forrest Scythe at the end. Um, it took two to three hours to film, and she did not want to come to work two days afterward. Bill Mosley shaved his head for the film so that his lace wig would fit properly, and it made him, it made it look like he was actually balding. Rob Zombie told William Forsyth to base wide out. I talked about that already. Lou Temple said that he was scared to death about possibly working with Rob Zombie when he was up for an audition. He had never met Zombie and only knew of him through his music, which he said wasn't something he listened to. After meeting with the casting director, Temple called his friend Walton Goggins, who had done House of a Thousand Corpses, saying, I'm just a good Christian boy from the South, so I don't know if I could go to work for this devil worshiper. Goggins told him to shut up and do yourself a favor. Go do a good movie and you'll have a friend for life. Temple did and enjoyed every minute of it. He also became close friends of Zombie, just like Goggins said that he would. The Anchorman is named... There's an Anchorman in this film named Derek Sanderson, after the NHL player of the same name who played for the Boston Bruins during the 70s. Zombie included that little Easter egg because he has a massive affinity for anything Bruins growing up in the Massachusetts area. All right, let's talk about the critics as we take a little walk to the critics' corner to see what they had to say. (laughs) 
Our next movie is The Devil's Rejects, and it has to be the sickest, the most twisted, the most deranged movie so far this year. And I'm giving it thumbs up because it's very good at what it wants to be, an almost pornographically violent B-movie. This is Rob Zombie's follow-up to the surprise hit House of 1000 Corpses, but in its own bloody way, it's much more creative and original than the vast majority of Hollywood sequels. After the cops raid the Firefly's House of Hell, arresting one family member and killing another, the remaining sickos go on the lam and take a few hostages. I want you to pray to your God. I want you to pray that he comes and saves you. I want lightning to come down and crash upon my head. Bless the bunnies. Bless the little birds. Bless the I don't world. feel anything. That's Bill Mosley. I think he gives the film's best performance as the psychopathic Otis who looks like an almond brother gone mad. William Forsyth plays the town sheriff whose brother is among the many, many, many Firefly victims. We here, we are playing on a level that most will never see. I know my brother George, he didn't see it. Maybe he had a divine moment when his brains hit the floor. Yeah, maybe you will too. Zombie is clearly influenced by drive-in classics such as Texas Chainsaw Massacre and more substantial violent fare such as Bonnie and Clyde. And he shows some real skill with the camera. He's also weirdly in love, I guess. Well, I guess not weirdly in love, but he's definitely in love with his own wife's naked backside. She's the aptly named Sherry Moon, and she plays the cheerfully <laughs> nutso baby firefly who seems to spend half the movie aiming her rear at the camera. Not that I'm complaining about this. We get all that, plus the scariest clown in recent cinema history, a great rock soundtrack, and some gruesomely entertaining kills. It's a sick film, but for what it is, thumbs up. Hate to disappoint you, but I'm going to give a thumbs up to him for exactly the same reasons that you have. But okay. I don't want anyone watching this show and writing in and saying we gave it two thumbs up so they went to see it and it was disgusting. I'm telling you, it is disgusting. Right. It's depraved. Yes. It's gruesome. It's over the top. It's beyond the pale. And yet, at the same time, it has an energy yeah. and a kind of internal logic and a power. I mean, oddly enough, these are good performances. They're very good performances. They're good performances. Absolutely, and yeah. then there's also this mordant humor. For example, the Firefly family has named itself after Groucho Marx characters. You got Captain Spaulding, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. A Rufus T. Firefly, right. Otis Exactly, Driftwood. they're the Fireflies. So they yeah. bring in a film critic as a Groucho Marx expert in order to help them solve Yeah, the and crimes. you get that whole wild scene where he complains because Marx died and then Elvis died right after yeah. him and nobody ever remembers Groucho. Mm -hmm. So maybe we should give this two severed thumbs up just so people know what it's, this movie's all about. It is one of a kind. Yes, it, it is. It certainly is. And that was Ebes and Roper with a surprise appraisal of this movie. I'm still shocked, 18 years later, that this film got two thumbs up from both these guys. So the film has a Rotten Tomato score of 55% based off 139 reviews with a critical consensus that says Zombie has improved as a filmmaker since House of a Thousand Corpses and will please fans of the genre, but beware, the horror is nasty, relentless, and sadistic. It's got a meta score of 53 out of 100 based on 32 reviews. No cinema score. Peter Travers from Rolling Stone magazine gave The Devil's Rejects 3 out of 4 stars and wrote, Let's hear it for the Southern Fried soundtrack. From Buck Owens, Satan's Gotta Get Along With Me, these Leonard Skinner's Freebird playing over the blood-soaked finale, which manages to wed the Wild Bunch to Thelma and Louise. Robert K. Oliver from the Chicago Tribune disliked the film, writing... Despite decades of soaking in bloody classics such as the original TCM, When I Spit on Your Grave, 
Zombie didn't absorb any of the underlying social tension or heart in those films. He's no collage artist of influences like Quentin Tarantino, crafting his movie from childhood influences. Rejects plays more of a junkyard of homages, strewn together and lost among inept cops, gaping plot holes, and buzzard-ready dialogue. Stephen King himself noted Devil's Rejects the ninth best film of 2005 and wrote no redeeming social merit perfect 70c grade picture cheesy glow this must have been what quentin tarantino meant when he did those silly kill bill movies james Bardinelli from real views gave a very negative review saying that devil's rejects was a half a star film out of four called it a vile reprehensive film saying the action was more formula than plot he described the dialogue as a pastiche at least i think that's the intention of the kind of bloodthirsty overripe lines found in a genre of films from the 70s about outcasts who defies social who defies society by destroying it. He was extremely critical of the acting, directing, and the production values with an ending that was a cataclysmic misfire and overall was not engaging cinema. Yeah, you know what? Fuck most of these critics because they're going to give their typical bland reviews. They're going to say, oh, it was too much, or oh, it was too much for this person. And everyone with a weak stomach is not going to be... You know, fuck all that, okay? Horror subjective, film is subjective. I'm just letting you guys know because sometimes you gotta be reminded that it doesn't matter what the fuck these people think. But it's funny hearing what they have to say. Although I'm I'm still shocked that Roper and Ebes gave this such a glowing review. I'm not gonna lie, I really am. So that's what they thought. Now let's hear about what I thought a little bit more in depth in the form of pros and cons. Start with the pros. The 70s aesthetic, I think, is perfect. It goes so well with this movie. And for Rob Zombie as a filmmaker, period. Uh, overall. The performances are astounding. Rob's choice of songs for the soundtrack, of course. I had to throw that in there. Specifically, Freebird. It perfectly pays homage to the 70s era of exploitation horror. Ultimately, you're supposed to feel uneasy after watching a movie like this. And you do. And Bill Mosley is a fucking saint. That's literally what I had in my notes. So the cons... Um, the use of CG throughout is unfortunate. And I have issues after this most recent rewatch with the hotel scene, mainly Gloria and Otis. I don't quite understand why Zombie sets the bar so low for him at this moment, only to turn around and ask his audience to give him... To fr- only to turn around and ask his audience to forgive and forget just a couple scenes later. I guess my issue is the median between villain and anti-hero. Because literally he does sick shit to these people. Murders them. And then a few scenes later, we're having a laugh over Tutti fucking Fruity. I mean, you know, is it, you know what I'm getting at? Yeah, it's just, I'm not, I have no regrets about, you know, the, the scenes in particular. I'm just saying like... They have to be so close to one another. Like, it's also an argument of which side are you on? Are you on the anti-hero side or are you on the villain side? I mean, I think this is an anti-hero story. I think the villain of the film is Forsyth on the run after these guys. I think once he puts his badge down and starts making things personal, that makes him a villain and not necessarily the lawman he's supposed to be. The badge don't mean shit when you're out for vengeance. 
So, um, let's talk about my Milligan moment. If you had to do it all over again, would you make the same choices? So either tone down the motel scene or don't immediately try and make Otis a likable character about 10 to 15 minutes later. Like, that's my Mulligan moment. Basically, what I was just saying. And that's my Mulligan moment as well, so. Alright, finger licking good. Finger licking good. The motel backlot, the handicap match between Otis versus Adam and Roy, primarily for the line, I'm the devil, I'm here to do the devil's work, is what makes this scene fucking fantastic and, like, an award winner. An award winner, literally, as in it's winning this award for the finger licking good moment from the film effect. Um, it's just the way he says it, the way the angle of the camera is shot upward at his bloody face. It's just, it's fucking chef's kiss. Like, mwah, I love it. All right. Now you might think I'm a little biased, but I take my job as a presenter very seriously. I will show no favoritism. I am here to honor excellence. And the most valuable player is... And that goes without saying that Bill Mosley, MVP of the film. If you thought I was going to pick someone else, then you're just as insane as he is. <laughs> um, so, uh, let's get physical. In the form of physical media. So the film came out when DVD and UMD. Remember that, kids? UMD for PSP? They both came out on November 8th, 2005 from Lionsgate. And then a year later is when the Blu-ray came out from Lionsgate. And then that's kind of the only way of watching it now. It's the most recent form of physical media, uh, I should say. Because five years later, um, in 2011, it got re-released in a two-pack with corpses, but that was just a re-release. Since 2006, when this Blu-ray came out, that also omits the fucking documentary. That's not on the Blu-ray. So if you want the 30 Days in Hell documentary, you can find that fucking OG DVD. It's on the Blu-ray, and you can't find it on YouTube. You can see half of it on YouTube, part one. Part two, got a copyright claim, which means the video is gone. So that sucks. Um, so I had to go dig out my old DVD to watch the second half of that. But yeah, it's it, it's kind of due for um, a, a, a new edition. It could definitely use uh, restoration. I, in fact, I can see Zombie working on these three films. Oh no, he did three from hell already in 4K. But I can see him working on this and Corpses uh, for the 4K format. Um Honestly, I'm surprised he hasn't done it yet, especially with the 16mm aspect of things, because you can pull some real beautiful grain work and some real beautiful HDR, a lot of pull from that 16mm dynamic. You'd be surprised what you can get off of film. Like, film is beauty. Film is beauty when it comes to 4K HDR. That's all I'm going to say. All right. So yeah, that's it. You know, not really much else to report on as far as physical media things. No 4K. The last major release was the, the Blu-ray 2006. So hopefully that changes soon. But until then, I'm going to give my final effect rating. How would you rate this one, Mom? 
and double feature pairing. Yeah, we made a great pair. All right, so I'm going to give this three and a half stars. And while I still find this to be better than Corpses, I did knock this down a half star since my last rewatch about a year and a half ago. Um, I'm still a big fan of this film, as I've been saying throughout, although I don't think I can honestly say I love it the way I used to. That said, I still feel all the performances are worth the watch. And the tone plus the film soundtrack really make this a memorable cult classic that I'm always going to at least appreciate. But yeah, three and a half stars is my comfort level final rating for that. Double feature pairing. Come on, guys. 74 Texas Chainsaw Massacre all the way. Almost the same aesthetic since both films have villainous families who we still root for in the horror world today. All right. Well, gang, it's about that time to ride off into the sunset and slap a brand on this Doubles Redux Breakdown, a film that 100% gets that patented film effects seal of approval. One down, many more follow. We're also wrapping up Season 3 of the Film Effect Podcast with this episode because we'll be taking the month of September off. Now, I gotta say, it's been one hell of a year so far, like I keep saying. A lot of ups and downs, but for the most part, you know, I've been doing my best to uh, keep things afloat, keep my head above water, as they say. And so, I will be taking the month of September off because I have a lot of prep work to do. For our Hollow 3 season of the Horrorthon. Yes, the third annual Horrorthon. If you want more information, check out our Twitter at Film Effect Pod and our Facebook account, the Film Effect Podcast. I have all the information up there right now as of this recording with the whole lineup breaking down all 13 episodes and what films they entail, as well as a couple of uh, special surprises throughout the month that are in the works. So, uh, you know, getting real with you all real quick. It's been a year, and so I felt instead of doing the whole gear cycle, I would just, this is a good stopping point for the season and just come back strong in October with both the Horrorthon plus Season 4 of the Film Effect Podcast. If this was your first time checking out the podcast, then first and foremost, welcome, and I hope you enjoyed everything presented on this episode. Let us know what you thought by leaving a quick rating or review, which can be done on Apple, Spotify, Facebook, or email, filmeffectpod at gmail.com, or directly on our website, filmeffectpodcast.com. Make sure you're following us on the socials for any up-to-the-minute news, updates, or announcements, at Film Effect Pod on Twitter, the Film Effect Podcast everywhere else. Guys, thank you so much for, for you know, I just... I just Every time I say thank you, I sincerely mean it, and I, I, I can't be any more serious. Um, you know, if, if this was just for five people, I would give it my same all as I would for 5,000 people. I love you all so much. But before I peace out, I want to thank our listeners for your time, and I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I enjoy recording it. I know this was one of Sean's favorite films, and hopefully I did him proud of this one, Sean. I love you, man. I love you so fucking much. But that's all for now, gang. Once again, my name is Ed, and this has been another edition of the Film Effect Podcast. Goodbye, everybody. Take us home, Sean. All right, gang. We're going to see you all again next time when those theater lights go dim and the opening credits begin to roll. Fucking free! Shut up! She's fucking free!
Listen, there is no fucking ice cream in your fucking future. 